The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. No mai hoki mai ki Adafold e mehine ko Duncan Grey tokungwa. Uh, my guest today is Amy Mills, who is the head of funding at New Zealand On Air, and someone I've talked to a lot over over the years. Like there's there's just a few like hardcore geeks uh, in this business, and I mean that in the broader sense of the word in the media, uh, who who. Are really interested in the the naughtiest conversations around where audiences are going, how they're behaving, how you optimally create things that you know achieve public media type outcomes um, in a very fast changing environment. That conversation is not for everyone, man. I, I see people's eyes darting around when I start talking like that, and I'm like, "Yep, fair play to you." But if that's what you're into, then honestly, you've come to the right place today. Uh, what we're talking about is, is two things, both of which are very fresh and we, people will just be digesting over the coming weeks and months. The first is a brand new batch of research called Where Are the Youth Audiences? Might be youth, might be young. Uh, <laughs> but there's a why in there. And that's a, a sort of a... An offspring of Where Are the Audiences, which is this relatively long-running piece of research that New Zealand and Air has conducted that is about the changing habits of, of viewing. You know, for, for listeners to this podcast will, will know for many decades we basically got up and did the same thing, read the newspaper, listened to the radio – uh, watch television in the evenings with a feeling really frisky. We might read a magazine. And then the internet comes along and blows that whole thing up. And what Where Are the Audiences has, has done is sort of track that from 2014, relatively late in the piece, where you could really see particularly younger people gravitating towards the internet. You know, we had, you know, the iPhone was maybe five, six years old. Ultrafast broadband was maybe five or six years old. You know, it was just the birth of the modern communications infrastructure, information infrastructure environment. And over the eight years subsequent to that, everything's changed incredibly fast. And New Zealand On Air is our sort of decentralized public media uh, funder has had to kind of go along with that. Sometimes, you know, often it's been a little bit, you know, back of the cut, but... 
But ultimately, I think particularly over the last few years, it's really made a very good faith effort to try and get up to speed with that. And, you know, that's particularly been true over the last couple of years since Kim Harlan took over as, as CE and, and Amy as, as head of funding. So as if that wasn't enough, just as a, as a general backdrop, uh, over the last couple of years, the government has decided that it's going to merge RNZ and TVNZ to venerable, been around decades, parts of our public media infrastructure. God, this sounds boring, but it's not. And and then give them a bunch more money and say, go and get those audiences that you missed. Oh, and by the way, some of that money that we're giving you, we used to give to New Zealand On Air. Oh, New Zealand, oh sorry, sorry, New Zealand On Air, you don't have that money anymore. So New Zealand On Air, which has done a, you know, has done this this important complex, increasingly complex job, suddenly has to figure out how to do it with heaps less money. And so that's what the second part of the of the interview is about, this new strategy, how they try and figure out how to be in a world where someone else has their Monday and someone else has way more money than them. And, you know, there's a version of that where you just want to, you know, pack up your toys and, and leave. And I'm sure they had days like that. But I think what they've arrived at, this idea of them being about research and about development and, and just creating an atmosphere that will let a lot more different kinds of people uh, create work for, for audiences and, and thinking really broadly about that, about almost like a venture capitalist is, is how I've written about it. You know, that's interesting. Whether it work, no one knows. That's not how any of this works. As anyone who tells you something with any confidence just has got – you know, can't they can't possibly be correct because you know this the whole nature of of this era is of things changing all the time in ways that no one could possibly anticipate. So Amy is one of my favorite people to talk about it. She's very smart. She's very much about good faith. She's not at all interested in, you know, the sort of perpetuating the way things are, but equally, you know, will not just accept that just because you know someone says they have a particular audience or, or solution, but she won't take that at face value. She'll probe it as to why. And so hopefully this this conversation kind of leans into all of the the complexity of that, but still still gets gets us somewhere good. So this is Amy Mills, New Zealand and Air's head of funding on the fold. Dinakwe, Amy Mills. I'm so excited to have you on the fold. Oh, kia ora, Duncan. Uh, you know, that's that's largely because we we talk a lot, and when we do, it always feels like it's basically a fold with with no microphones. But um, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about where where are the youth, young audiences, which is a piece of research that came out literally this morning, and the new strategy, which is something that came out last week. So this is all, it's all very fresh. It's all happening. It is all happening, you know, it's its not a chill time, time <laughs> of year, just, but I, what I wanted to start with is actually something that's a lot more basic than that, which is just, just explain to our listeners what New Zealand On Air is and, and what your, your role in that, that kind of beautiful unicorn of an organisation is. I've actually never heard anyone describe a, a public media funding agency as a beautiful unicorn, but it does, it feels like that to me. So, um, 
Yeah, so as I understand it, um, actually the genesis of the whole New Zealand on air model actually came from Richard Preble. So it, it has a very interesting kind of foundation to it, which is around kind of almost this idea of um, greater contestability. So, so tell me why you wanted to work there. So I, um, the, the journey to figuring out what New Zealand on air was, uh, was kind of a circuitous one. And I'd, I'd started at TVNZ in the marketing team originally and had been working on how to build out almost kind of, we don't use the word anymore, but like transmedia multi-platform campaigns around our, the local content that TVNZ was commissioning, funded by New Zealand on air, but in the marketing team, I sort of wasn't fully aware of that. And then when I jumped across um, and became the digital and children's commissioner, suddenly I can completely understand and see the role of New Zealand on air. And and that was actually my my tethering to it, was that at, at the time, and it's kind of apt actually that we're going to be talking about the youth research, but New Zealand on air had done this um, very significant deep dive into children's media use, which led them to putting out quite a... Um, specialised and bespoke kind of request into the market to say we want a partner who will create a children's platform for us because actually the research is showing this is what we need to do in this particular moment in time. And so when I was at TVNZ, we pitched for that work and worked incredibly closely alongside New Zealand On Air to develop what was the Hey Hey platform when it was launched. And and that made me understand the role of New Zealand On Air and that's when I kind of fell in love with what we do and the importance of it and how protected it was. And I think I'd been working quite a few years within TVNZ and we'd been making amazing local content, but I could also see how difficult it was to get um, what I would call kind of pure public media content up and out into the world, particularly things like children's content where it's not easily or not at all commercialised. And so, yeah, that was the sort of burgeoning understanding of New Zealand on air and then the rare role came up um, for the head of funding. So I just chucked my head in. It's such a... You know, I, I feel like that because there is a dominant model for public media around the world, particularly in countries to which we have close ties, that's the, the ABC, the, the CBC, the, the BBC, uh, Australia, Canada and, and Britain. But the, the New Zealand approach, you know, it's really different, but it, it feels kind of suited to, to a country like ours, which is... You know, it's it's got all these attributes that really aren't aren't common to to others, and you know, you know, and I, and I think that's interesting. Hopefully, we'll we'll get into that. But I guess the thing that's about that that you know makes it controversial is also, in some respects, what makes this this research actually really important, because you know, the, there's this sense that when you have a single source of truth, like a, a single supplier of public media. You want to know whether something's successful, but it, on some level, you know, it, it's it's a nice to know. Like it helps, you know, kind of explain your mandate. But when you when it's contestable, you really need to know what people are doing with their attention and how that relates to what what you're funding. And this is you know quite controversial research, and we'll get into that. Mm. But I, I wondered if you could just sort of explain the why. And this actually predates you, the original Waita research, but explain why New Zealand On Air kind of started doing this research and, and what it is that it's become for the organisation over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's become absolutely central to, ha to how we undertake our kind of approaches to our funding strategies because because ultimately um, our true north 
we talk about all the time is is the underrepresented audiences that sit within the Broadcasting Act, which underpins us, which was created 30 years ago. And those are the audiences that are often most um, underrepresented, underserved, arguably overlooked by um, the commercial media, the mainstream media. And so this research is the kind of uh, the underpinning, if you like, of better understanding those audience groups so that we can better serve them. I think you've said this multiple times in your kind of assessment of of the research. There's also something I I think we hold very close, which is that we're um, an agnostic horse in this race. We aren't attached to a platform, and therefore that um, data around audiences, I think, is all the more kind of weightier because it has a level of, I would say, objectivity to it because actually we're not... You know what it's like when you get data from every platform will cut the same data completely different ways to tell the story they need it to tell. So there's something quite powerful, I think, about what that research signifies within the sector on the basis of us sort of sitting in Switzerland in terms of putting it out. But increasingly, I think we're now trying to utilise the research, and we'll talk about this more with the youth one, to... um, sort of reimagine the funding policies, which we probably have done less of. We've kind of steered or tried to prioritise how we fund things still using the same traditional platforms and partnerships that we've had in place. And I think now we're starting to lean deeper into the research to go, do the models need to be upturned? Yeah. So that, I mean, that kind of talks to the that new strategy that you announced uh, at Sparta uh, a few days ago, which, which I think we'll get to. But in some ways, the this where are the the youth audiences research, which which, which came up this morning, really almost gives you a, like a, a fresh and and a, you know quite powerful mandate around there is no choice but to change. You know what what leapt out of uh, of these these findings to you. Uh, I'm going to put I'm going to put a really positive spin on it, spin on it, which I know you will then challenge. But the things that leapt out to me, and I guess this is because this is the world in which I'm doing a lot of thinking. But it was it was actually the conversations with the young people around perceptions of the quality of the content and why they watch the content, the motivations for doing it. Like I think I was quite. I think there's been a bit of a um, not a myth, but just the sense to which we talk about. New Zealand-specific local content, um, young people not being interested in it or there's cultural cringe or it's not good enough quality and they don't want to watch it, they want to watch Netflix or they want to watch HBO. The powerful kind of insights out of this research that I am leaning into is that actually when we put local content in front of them, um, they were um, overwhelmingly uh, positive about the content itself and surprised by it and kind of debunking their own perceptions around quality when they had it. So, But then that highlights, obviously, the undeniable fact of discoverability and actually getting it in front of them so that they can consume it. But I guess it felt very heartening to know that it's not the content itself, that actually when, when young people are engaging with content that reflects New Zealandness reflects them back at themselves. They want that. They want more of that. They want content that they know, um, yeah, speaks to them. Yeah, and I am going <laughs> to, I am going to push back a little, only in the sense that I think that can be true in the abstract. But you know, the the whole lesson of the last ten years is when given the option, you know, people at a at the top level tend to behave in a in a particular way, and the the. The part I found most staggering about this was that of the top seven platforms by daily usage, and this this is complicated, right? Because this mm-hmm. actually 
you can watch video on all of these platforms, but they're also messaging platforms and you know, photo sharing platforms. They, they, they do a whole bunch of things, but all seven of them are from overseas and driven by algorithms, essentially. And which means that ultimately the discoverability piece is in someone else's hands, unless a really, really brave uh, politician wants to, to challenge that and start to uh, get involved in, in how content is surfaced, which you know, people are doing overseas. And, and I think on some level is almost uh, inevitable here. But you know, the, the fact that those are, you know, they're algorithmically driven, they're, they're overseas owned, they're also largely user-generated content as opposed to the professionally made pl- content that we, you know, we as in our industries, you know, New Zealand on Air funds and the spin-off tends to cover. It, you know, that's that's really not the thing. Like how, how do you sort of respond to that? Do you think that is a bit of a weather to New Zealand on Air to actually think how do we engage with that user-generated mm. content world or, or is it actually that it's about taking – you know what what is what is created out of the production sector and and and, and adapting it for those platforms yeah i i think th- i think what's interesting in this particular conversation is not to lump all content in together because i think what the the research talked about a little bit and there's probably a deeper dive that can be done in this space is um that young people still actually are demonstrating um, desire to watch similar types of um, what we might call kind of traditional content genres or kind of, you know, um, scripted or drama or, you know, something like Heartbreak High on Netflix, which, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about. And um, and so I think what, what we're kind of interested in is that it's not one way in which the content needs to be made or one type of genre or one, it's understanding... Um, what are their motivations for watching? Where do we need to be investing more in that more UGC type content that you're talking about? But actually, where is it still entirely relevant to be making a youth drama, for example, but then being incredibly smart about how um, that content then can be um, kind of deconstructed or not just deconstructed, but actually kind of um, built and assets created in such a way that it lives and breathes on TikTok or it lives and breathes on YouTube and maybe draws a whole kind of attention and currency and conversation. But ultimately they're watching that show on Netflix or they're watching it on TVNZ Plus or wherever. So I I think it it is a, a very significant challenge, but I just don't see us making one kind of type of content or having to change our approach to only do it one certain way for this audience group, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. It's it's, and and also, you know, I think you can't deny the fact that we're in a a state of transition and that none of this stuff is resolved just yet. But you know, another stat that that leapt out to me that was quite you know alarming was the idea that uh, you know less than half of our rangatahi can say with any confidence that they have consumed a piece of New Zealand-made content, setting aside music, which I which I want to talk about separately because I do think it's instructive, in the past month. 
you know, which which yeah. it is, it's something that we have to wrestle with. Like I, the, the beautiful yeah. thing about this research is, I think we have to look at it. We can't yes. dismiss it, even though some people would like to. And just on that point in particular, like I, I do think it, it would be interesting for us to think more about. Um, does it matter that they don't identify it as New Zealand content or think of it as local content per se? Like, uh, there might be more stock we're placing in the, the labelling of something as local when actually they just want to love the content they love and they want it to be surfaced where they are and they want to be able to talk about it with their friends. And whether or not they consciously or specifically go, that's a piece of local content. Like, I think we're quite hung up on that, especially in that government funding space where we're trying to talk about... The I, outcomes. Yeah, I think the measures around cultural impact are far more important. Like what we don't want to be seeing is we, we want to be able to say, did this content make you feel differently about being a New Zealander or, or how did it make you feel about um, the country and it, that you live in and things? Like those are the measures that are going to matter. Um, it just there's something in yeah the labelling of it that I'm like struggling with a little bit as well. I understand that and I, I do think, you know, it's totally plausible that, you know, a 20-year-old from New Zealand might only view, and as in watch through or having a meaningful engagement with a piece of New Zealand content twice a year, and that might be actually a perfectly acceptable amount, and that wouldn't be captured within that, you know, what looks like a satisfactory measure within the survey. But it also feels like on some level it gives you a bit of an out to say, like, they, maybe they didn't know that it yeah, was New Zealand yeah. content. Because I think, obviously, within a you know UGC, the user-generated content world, they will be seeing New Zealand-made stuff all the time. It might just be made by their friends. It might be just, you know, like a, a creator economy slash influencer, delete according to taste, uh, person who, who they've always admired, both of which are currently unfunded, un, unfundable, but... Yeah, setting that aside. But I do think, yeah, I mean, that, that's why this stuff is so challenging, right? But, but um, Yeah, and I think <clears throat> your point is right that you put up in the article um, around saying that we, these conversations moving forward, we, we have to be talking about YouTube and Netflix and others. But I think that you, you're absolutely right. So the conversation will shift because at the moment there is such a scarcity of any content, local content being put out on those platforms that it's no wonder that that's the kind of response. So I guess it's just looking at the opportunity of that moving forward um, for us is what we're really interested in because I think we can see where, especially with all the changes which we'll talk about, but where it'll be far more natural for us to be funding directly to those platforms with a few caveats in place around how that's done. And I keep thinking as well, for us, it's about investing in the storytellers who are of that, um, not just age demographic, but of that mindset. And like the more we are building the skills and capability of people who want to be telling stories for those audiences, the the better this is gonna, this outlook is going to be. I mean, that was the thing that struck me at, at the Spider Conference last Friday was you had a whole room full of people who are used to operating in a in a system that is basically descended from how things were made for linear television, which is that you spend a lot of time planning, that you whether you know like that you know you pitch a particular way. There's a whole sort of schedule to it that that is functionally kind of the opposite of the way that the the UGC universe operates. And I guess this is where ultimately I, I'm leading to. Like, is there a 
and and I know that there has been, uh, you know, New Zealand on air. You know, to I think its credit has has worked with with TikTok, has worked with YouTube Kids, for example, and and is is very open to those platforms. But it still feels, on some level, like it comes from a place of the the idea, the pitch. Like it, it's just it's just got a particular gestation to it. Whereas there's a world where you take people who who have proven an ability to go and find an audience but who operate in a very responsive way that's responsive to events, to trends. I mean, that's very much what TikTok is about. And you don't know exactly what you're going to get, but there's a bit of a trust me quality to it. Do you think that that is something that you can imagine for New Zealand On Air particularly, and we'll get to that, the, the this new vision of New Zealand On Air, which has just a, quite a different remit post uh, ANZPM? Yeah, absolutely. And I, <clears throat> I actually think we... We, I mean, you kind of gave a nod to this. We've already got the toe in the water on it. And something like um, Shit You Should Care About is Extremely Online, which was born out of the youth RFP, the request for proposals that we put out, which we kind of changed the rules on because, for that very reason. So I think um, we keep talking kind of almost sort of um, ad nauseum in the scripted space about the power of um, development funding, that actually projects can kind of come in for initial seed funding to develop, to find their concept and then develop and then come in for further production funding. And I think that there's even more that can be done around responsive access to funding or slate funding so that you have, so let's say like a, a creator like Robbie Nicholl, who's making through and through incredible public media content. And yet him and I have had really interesting conversations in the past about how Exactly as you're saying, the funding mechanisms have almost thwarted the ability for that content to live and breathe the way it needs to on YouTube because of those kind of structures or because the scale of production has shifted in such a way. So I think that's going to be core to how we move forward to reach these audiences is that we will be funding the content in ways that work for how content creators are doing it on those platforms now. But then I'd be at pains to also say, but we've got to be doing it for the right type of content that justifies public subsidy and is public media content. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense. And it's also the hard thing because on some level, the way that things are currently structured allows you to vet at a reasonably granular level what it is you are buying. Whereas this this flipping of that says you, you can vet who you're buying, but you can't have much control uh, or have anyone near as much control over what it is they But make. we don't at the moment. We have no editorial remit across the content. But you're right in terms of the way things are pitched and how structured they are. And how much detail there is in those pitches. Yeah, precisely. But uh, again, I think all that stuff actually boringly comes down to kind of mechanisms that you build into your production funding agreements or how you might have um, executive producer oversight or we have reporting requirements currently where producers have to kind of be able to, to get the drawdowns of the funding. They have to be talking about how they're delivering to what they pitched. And so there's all kinds of mechanisms, I think, that you can safeguard around that. Yeah, it doesn't at all feel like it's incompatible. It just it, it requires a change of philosophy. But the the big thing, you know, you're, you're in a room like that and I, I, want, I want to move on because it can get so in the weeds and... This is a bit of a trade podcast. I'm not going to lie, but um, but it, it can be too much at times. But that uh, you don't want to talk more about funding policy. <laughs> I mean, you know that I can do that all day. <laughs> but uh, you know that this this thing exists ultimately for audiences. It doesn't exist for the production sector. The production Correct. sector is just something that's grown up around serving those audiences, and the, just that the production sector is going to change, going to have to change if it wants to pursue pursue particularly those audiences and it's also going to have to understand that it's going to compete with 
solo creators and and little groups of creators in a way that's really would have been totally unimaginable even a few years ago. One thing I I thought there was, you know, my turn to find a bright spot in the research was the extent to which New Zealand music really kind of shone within it. And that is, you know, New Zealand music has, it gets about six million bucks from of New Zealand on air's budget, which you know roughly four percent, a tiny fragment um, in the scheme of things, and yet it's it's overall, you know, across almost every metric you care to name, it 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 did well um, within the research around kind of recognition, frequency of engagement, and so on. And there was part of me that sort of thought, well, music's always been a bit of a user-generated content, right? Like it it doesn't have it doesn't come through the same kind of pipe system there are always new people trying to fight their way into the arena there are a bunch of different labels uh, you know anyone can upload a song to Spotify uh, anyone can up- upload a song to YouTube were there lessons that you felt that that music knows that uh, that we, we can you know the broader, screen or content industry can learn from? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, hats off to music as well because they overcame a kind of cultural cringe. So they've actually done the job of moving past the perceptions of that in terms of quality, especially on the global stage. And I think we talk a lot... um, internally about some of the key differentiators between music funding and screen funding, things like actually long ago, the openness towards that content going out onto international platforms um, and, and things like marketing and promotion. And actually, I've always really admired and loved the showcase model as well within music where kind of musicians are brought through, especially emerging musicians, and can showcase their work and then that kind of builds trajectory towards their careers. And I think that's something I'd love to mirror in the screen space. We have so many examples of these breakout successes of projects, you know, things like Rurangi, things like Inside. And I don't think we have enough of a pause to actually kind of look at those as case studies, like what worked, why were they special, what were some of the dynamics at play there that then can kind of inform things going forward. So, yeah, I think there's just a a whole number of um, areas around music that we're going to increasingly lean to and look towards to learn from. And something interesting that we've recently been developing, um, we've got a sync licensing report that's going to be released soon um, up on our website that's looking at the complexities of why we haven't seen more New Zealand um, music baked into the local production that's come through, especially in the um, like premium or the high-end drama space. Um, and this year uh, we funded two um big scale dramas, um, both of whom have had the opportunity to come in and seek really well um, kind of designed additional money to go towards um, local music composition and music baked into the shows themselves. So again, we won't see the fruits of that labour until probably next year, but that's something, again, we're looking even further into, and that works at any scale of production. So yeah, we're really keen to see how that works and what more could be learned because one of the key things that came out of the sync licensing report was there is a little bit of a lack of education or awareness on the New Zealand production side or producer side about how to do that well. It's quite a complex system and there's barriers to that, not just around funding. So, yeah, quite excited about that. (laughs) I love the nerdiness of all this, I have to say. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So one thing which I think is a, is a real tension in here which, which I, and I genuinely have no clue how you resolve it, but I'm really, I think that, you know, everyone who's a participant in the sector has to at least think about it, is the top seven platforms are all kind of messaging, user-generated content or some combination of them, Netflix aside, um, which has its own complexities around the paywall and how that interacts with, um, you know, your legislation. And they have all had various kinds of, Scandals around the content, um, which which sits on those platforms, particularly as it pertains to young people. I'm thinking about the rise of Andrew Tate on on TikTok and and how that impacted you know very young kids, uh, or Francis Horgan, the the Instagram whistleblowers revelations around the impact it was having on on young people over the world. And yet, if you're not there. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you don't consider that a, a brand safe environment, then you're just basically abdicating the audience. You know, how do you sort of wrestle with that? Mm. That I don't know if it's a contradiction, but it's certainly a real tension around what what actually goes on in these platforms and how it impacts audiences and what what by being there you are on some level, you know, saying it's it's okay. Yeah. This actually came up um, as one of the questions after we um, presented the youth research this morning. And to be honest, we're utterly grappling with it as is everyone, as everyone else. One of the points we made was just that, and you've just made it in terms of abdicating the um, audience, like there is, a, there is an ethical issue in terms of not being on there as well, if that is where the, in terms of research and evidence base, I think where we have approached it or the ways that we've approached it is just trying to be incredibly considered about how we do that. So the examples of things like Every Voice Matter because we're working with TikTok as a platform, we're trying to understand how to ensure the content finds its way to its audience. And I think we just we are taking a measured approach in terms of how much funding is going onto those platforms. It's not a straight answer for you, but it's certainly one one that we're grappling with. But it does feel like it's not enough to just put our heads in the sand and say we shouldn't be on it, full stop. Yeah, and and yeah, there is some of the people who make that, those arguments, you know, there there is an integrity to the argument, but there's also a vested interest, you know, that that suggests only find local platforms irrespective of whether they reach audiences, only find local productions irrespective of whether they reach those audiences. But if I can actually add to that as well, like the children's strategy that we launched this year, so not the youth strategy, the children's strategy, um, we were very conscious of this issue, I think, around YouTube kids as well. And, And the point that we wanted to make was actually we see the opportunity and this works well in the kids because it's non-commercial. So kind of this idea of multiple um, kind of content sharing partnerships, et cetera, can work far easier there. I'm I'm sort of aware of that. But it was about saying that we want it in both places. We want parents to know that actually it's on Prime Sky or it's on um, TVNZ Plus and it's also on YouTube Kids and it's about kind of choice and options as well. And I guess that's one way to kind of responsibly work in that that realm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. In the the kids' space in some ways it's simpler because 
of the the lack of commercial imperative. And I do sometimes think when you transfer funding toward the user-generated content platforms, YouTubes, TikToks, Instagrams, and so on, you know, A, those are wildly profitable platforms. B, they can be harder to make a living um, on than more traditional platforms. How do you sort of grapple with those kind of, on some level, conflicting North Stars? Yeah, and I think there's a, and I will speak specifically to kids, um, but things like um, the understanding that we're geolocking the content to New Zealand on YouTube kids, I think is a really important one. So it doesn't, um, it doesn't diminish the producer's ability to commercially sell that worldwide around the world. You know, we're, we're waiting and hoping for our next bluey opportunity and that the the way in which we're looking at the distribution strategy won't curtail that potential and opportunity. And I think the other thing that I bang on about a lot, and we, but we're sort of early days of having enough data to kind of be very kind of explicit about it, but I think the reality is that there's not a cannibalising necessarily of audiences across those platforms either. And we've seen that a little bit with some of the... Um, multi-platform distribution of shows like uh, The Hui and Tangata Pacifica going out across wider platforms than just TVNZ and actually it's some, in some instances and Ahikaro is a great example of this with Fakata Māori and TVNZ's content sharing arrangement is that actually Fakata Māori was seeing an increase in audiences coming to Ahikaro potentially because there'd been a greater exposure and release on On Demand. So I think that Again, that myth of like trying to bust that you can't have it in those places because you lose revenue in one area or you lose audience share. I think the reality is you can be talking to different audience groups and you're incrementally growing the audience. That's certainly what we're trying to get more data around to demonstrate. I mean, that, that's one of the, you know, the, the fascinating things about, you know, the, this kind of very postmodern era that we're living through where, you know, what what is content, what is marketing for the content, what is a... A, a satisfactory experience of it versus something which points you somewhere else. I think, you know, that Ahikaro example suggests that actually just by making it more available, everyone who holds a piece of it actually benefits. So I want to shift now to, to talk a bit about the the strategy that you, you unveiled at Sparta, which is like, you know, I've, I've written about it for this, this spinoff, but... Um, it was quite a strange situation where, you know, you were basically sat in front of a, a room full of people for, of, you know, you'll know almost all of them who have had a relationship with New Zealand on air over a, a long period of time and saying, so, hi, we've got like less than half as much money as we did last year and and the bit that's there for you is even smaller again proportionally. You've had a weird winter. <laughs> Right? That's an odd message. Yeah, yeah, it is an odd message. I think um, proportionately less, but not necessarily either. I guess my weirdo to the sector or our weirdo to the sector also says, what do the local platforms want to do alongside the wider international platforms in terms of their content going out as well? And I know that's not an easy discussion and I know there's a, a massive amount of commerciality and issues with that, but I do... I do think what we were trying to say to the room was it, it's undeniable now that we're going to have to do things differently. And yes, in a, a significantly reduced funding environment, we're going to have to prioritise some things over others. But it, 
yeah, I'm interested in what your kind of take on that was in terms of how you read it to the sector, because we kind of see a, a ton of opportunity in this space for local platforms as well as for producers. Yeah, I mean... Sorry, I, and just to add to that, given the fact that ANZPM, the ANZPM, is going to be growing the pot, well, we, as we understand it, growing the pot of public funding. It's trying to step up and out of us not just being seen as the major ecosystem there, it's actually the wider the wider piece at play. And so suddenly, what are we doing differently alongside the new public media broadcaster and others? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that that was what was kind of most interesting about it, that there was this clarifying effect about what, you know, what ANZPAM's role would be, that's ANZPAM, that's the, the merged entity that is going to control TVNZ and RNZ and have a bunch more money besides, and is going to have, you know, I think if you did the, the math on it, you know, from what uh, Kate Slater, the TVNZ's Director of Content, said, you know, anywhere up to $200 million of local commissioning budget, which is a very large increase on what's currently available, along with this new remit to reach audiences that aren't the quote unquote commercial demographics. It's 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 all it's all a lot. But uh, I thought that New Zealand on Air's kind of conception of itself as a it always almost felt like where everything should begin in a way, and that it, the research should be the basis of how of where things go and and what is and isn't working. And then this this idea of development, and you pointed to the work with the Pan Asian Screen Collective and uh, with the Pacific Island Screen Alliance um, on new waves, and just this idea that um, you know it it was that you know the actual amount that is available to to make you know retail products, you know that, that which is about sort of call it uh, thirty million dollars, is much smaller, but. If you think of it as a, as a, you know, it's it's you go from being like Lion or DB to being a, a craft brewer, like this experimental lab, which ultimately should feed into a great many different places. And I and you know, I th I, f I found that quite quite an interesting and challenging thing, especially given that you came up with it in about ten minutes in the scheme of things. And and it almost felt like you and Cam felt kind of liberated from that because historically it's been very hard to escape the sense that. You know, three and TVNZ just owned a very large amount of the funding for almost historic reasons, and there was never going to be a way to break that apart from a situation like this. It's interesting you say that. In, in ten minutes, yes, but actually, I would say the New Zealand Media Fund review in twenty twenty, because we'd had the um, seismic shift of the. Um, change to the funding structure that happened in 2017. The New Zealand Media Fund was born. This idea it was going platform agnostic. It was no longer entirely captured by linear. Um, but actually the but research... Still it, it was not, you know, like... Well, this is the point I think I'm trying to make. The point that the, the research showed that actually it didn't significantly change um, outputs or platforms or, or where the money was actually precisely. going. And so I think that set the train in motion of... Okay, so what are what are the pipeline issues? What are the, what are the systemic issues? Where are the pressure points? And we kept finding ourselves going back to, um, interestingly, back to to our storytellers, to the um, very narrow doorways in which um, writers and creators could kind of walk through to then pitch their wares, to then get onto the platforms to get the content out. So. Um, 
but you're right. This is this is a. Um, I think this is an, an opportunity for us to move or accelerate into the direction that we had already been leaning towards, which was trying to actually go. What's our place in the whole ecosystem, not just as the primary funder, based on the kind of quantum we get? Like these conversations we're having around the screen production grant at the moment, and there's massive advocacy and sort of oddly unison amongst the sector that the rules should be changed to allow for um, producers to access NZONIA baseline funding along going into the screen production grant, which currently you're not allowed to quote-unquote double dip unless it's for children's and animation. Um, that one change alone, I think, would transform the sector. Again, it just brings access to a much greater um, amount of putia. And if we can sit at the kind of epicentre of um, driving the writers and creators to build the projects up that may ultimately never get funded by us or could get funded by the ANZPM or Discovery or Prime Sky or Fakata Māori, um, whatever that looks like, that, that's what we're really interested in. So that it does, it feels like this is our kind of moment of doubling down on that thesis and, and pushing forward. So I've kind of got a bit ahead of it, um, which is very typical of this, the scenario here. So do you want to just kind of explain that that new idea about how, how you'll operate and, and how that interacts with that big known issue that was very much identified in the research that is the foundational to the idea of uh, ANSPAM itself and, you know, has been, I think, a... An obsession of New Zealand on air over the past couple of years, particularly, uh, where what the what the new strategy is and why you've gone in that direction. Yeah. So the so the reality of um, where we're heading is that we're going from historically having about eighty million dollars worth of contestable funding for scripted and factual only. So that's not for music. That's not for platforms funding, and that that quantum is now going down to around um, thirty million dollars. And historically, we've we've carved that pot up fifty fifty, where factual and scripted get get half each. So in an environment where you've suddenly got 15 million for scripted and 15 million for factual. Um, we just we no longer have the scale and volume to produce the yeah the, the scale of content that was going out before. So we what we did was we kind of when we got the news about the reduction in funding. This is of the legislation passes. We we sat down and we retrenched and we started looking at what were the projects that we could sort of hand on heart look at and go these sort of typify. Um, why we think we exist, why we should be funding them. Audiences have found them. They've meant something. They've gone on to travel and be picked up around the world, but they're hugely culturally specific, all those kind of variables, and there's always tons at play when we're looking at um, what we invest in. And invariably what we started to see was it actually wasn't that the scale of production was kind of interesting, that actually the the, the projects that had kind of shot through and shot out had um, been able to have kind of deeper or richer development or had gone through and been part of kind of key initiatives where we'd worked with industry bodies to bring in new voices coming through and things. So it's really just a crystallising of that. We are still retaining a level of contestable funding for production, but it's likely that we'll make key changes such as the number of funding rounds, the amount of applications people can put in and a much greater onus on yeah, development as we've talked about. And sorry, critically marketing and promotion, which is a challenging aspect of this conversation because with reduced money, we're putting a stake in the ground to say we need to be 
more explicitly funding marketing and promotion out of our funding baseline alongside production funding. And of course, that's squeezing the pot tighter. Um, we're using the, the children's strategy at the moment as our um, yeah, test balloon to kind of gauge. We've carved out quite a nominal amount, about 2 to 3% of the funding um, of the production funding for children's content is going towards paid marketing and promotion to actually alongside the platforms. That's the key thing here is that the platforms are still expected that they've got a horse in the race. They're expected to market and promote this content to their audiences. But we're trying to do an ancillary thing where we're additionally funding paid marketing and promotion to try and ensure we're reaching the eyeballs that we need to so that'll be something that we're looking to roll out as well going on from next year. That's historically been a bit of a complaint amongst some on the production or talent side is that they'll pour everything, pour their whole hearts into creating a product and then the platform will just sort of put it out. And, you know, whether that's through the time slot or the amount of, of marketing and promotional support that it just will feel like it doesn't have the opportunity to become what it might, you know, is there anything in this new strategy that says we will kind of hold the platform to account on that? Like that, you know, there isn't a, you know, a guaranteed certain amount of future funding if there is a bit of a desultory response to to actually holding the thing very tight and, and, and raising it right? Yeah, the, the tricky thing that we've always found in this space is where the leverage is. So ultimately we fund the producer, we don't fund the platform. And so the only real kind of, I guess, sort of, yeah, weight or leverage you can have is at the point in time in which the platform wants to get the project funding at the very beginning. So we did we did say at Sparta we will be far more discerning, and we already are, but we will be looking very closely at the, the marketing campaigns and the commitment and the assets and, and things that the platforms are committing to with the projects that are coming into us for funding and that that will actually be a crucial thing as to how we prioritise one project. If there's two projects side by side and they look fantastic and they could equally be funded, but one platform has gone very clearly and said this is how and what we will do and what we will invest in, that's going to get funded over the other one. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's still a bit, it, it's sort of early, early early doors for us in terms of, of how we make that work. The other thing I want to add, though, as well, because the Aotearoa Screen Publicity Collective has done a phenomenal job of shining a light on how sort of broken that pipeline is when productions are being made and huge opportunities are being missed while things are being created to just carve out time within production schedules and budgets to allow for amazing still shoots, things that are going to create all of the incredible assets. And it was really affirming to see that reflected back at us in the youth research as well, that actually it's the content that has got really strong collateral that's living and breathing on social media and building social currency that's getting talked about and driving kind of word of mouth and uptake. So I just think, yes, it's a difficult conversation, more money going towards it, but it's also just a no-brainer in terms of what the research is telling us. Yeah, to, to, to make it and not have anyone see it as, as almost <laughs> a big tragedy again. <laughs> We've talked a lot about yeah, you know, we've used a lot, a lot of acronyms and and a lot about the sort of systems and processes, and that's a natural thing. A, there's government money involved, and B, it's a very complex era. But I'd love it if you'd talk for a minute about some some projects uh, that that feel like they represent a, a vision of where this thing might go, particularly for New Zealand on air as it adjusts to this 
new environment that, that where you can say, okay, more like this. And I'm going to use Extremely Online again, actually, because um, the Shit You Should Care About team, I, I was listening to Lucy on an interview where she talked about what the New Zealand On Air funding had meant for the team, which was that they had already done all of the heavy lifting of building up their amazing community. and But they saw an opportunity um, where they could come in to access the, the funding under the youth RFP to create this kind of, um, you know, relatively good-sized and scaled project that allowed them to essentially quit their jobs was the way I sort of heard her phrase it. So it allowed them to go, we're going to have a crack at this and give this a go. And to date, they're yet to come back in for funding for New Zealand On Air. Um, but what, to me, that kind of showed, and it goes back to us talking about the kind of incubator idea, it was like, where did that funding have the highest impact that enabled um, a production company, producer, storyteller to do something that probably would have been too risky, too difficult to capitalise on or invest in themselves, um, but yet delivers to public media outcomes as well. And I think another good example was um, Wrestler with the self-help web series, which is really brilliant. And for them, I think it was an early foray for them into scripted that they hadn't really done before and wouldn't necessarily have been something as a commercial organisation they could easily invest in or kind of get the writer's table together and do that. And so their ability to come in and get that funding proof points the ability for them to do it, and it's an amazing calling card. And so that feels like that's going to open up and create greater opportunities, both for kind of our funding going forward, but I'm sure other um, areas that are in their commercial space as well. So I think that that area we're really interested in is kind of the, the high-impact area. What does that look like? In terms of the, you know, the the different audiences that, that are missing, what you know, part of the reason you've you've gone hard into research is because that old period where you could, on some level, rely on you know Nielsen to um, or, or radio surveys to tell you a story that you're re- pretty confident and about audience. At the very least, it was all there was in terms of distribution. You know, especially thinking about the sort of the underserved audiences. Uh, you, you know. How how confident are you in both the research that you have and and particularly this this new suite of kind of always on analytics that you're building out and encouraging people to come in for? They're not sure whether they're going to actually do it because everyone wants to know, but no one wants their their work marked in public kind of thing. But but obviously that's incredibly important to to, to know or to be as confident as you can be that you're meeting those Māori Pacific, particularly Pan-Asian. I always think that's, you know, in terms of the scale of that audience versus how it's served, that that is really, really one that 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 often gets missed. You know, how will you know? And do, or do you feel like you have the tools to know that you're going to, to get them? I really wish I could sub our audience and media strategist Kat Goodwin into this answer because <laughs> I, I don't think I will do it as much justice as she will. And the tool that you're referencing um, is is a data tagging tool that we have piloted under the Public Interest Journalism Fund so that all our funded content under that fund, um, it's a requirement of the platform um, and producer that they tag the content so that we're getting a comparative view across everything we've funded under public interest journalism of like what are viewers, um, what are we seeing in terms of 
views across all of the the populace and time spent with that content as well and some demographics that draw into regional and things but it's not down to specificity of the demographics of the individuals watching the content so we're not getting a, a clear line of sight on that um, as yet so I think that's still something that we're absolutely grappling with um, as is everyone I think around and it's so important for us because obviously it's not just about reach for New Zealand on air it's about if that content was for a targeted community did that reach them and did it have an impact? So finally, there's, and I feel like this this has been really thick in the conversation, but there's this kind of, you know, duality where on some level the the potential and the possibility uh, of, of this era is, is enormous and kaleidoscopic, but there is also so much that we don't know, cannot know. In your heart of hearts, are you are you confident this is winnable? That you know, for Anne's Pam with its kind of newly monster budget, that's also like you know about the cost of you know a couple of episodes of Lord of the Rings. Um, that that you know that say we're looking back from the end of the decade that that this community has been able to make content which can win a battle for our attention. Yeah, you know, on these on these motu in a truly globalized market. That's not a chill question. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's the I, last one. So <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we define winnable. I guess you just sort of did. I, I am, I am hopeful. I, I, but and I say that because I think you know what the vagaries of this is like the sector, the changes in um, media consumption, the sort of appearing and disappearing platforms. I, I feel like we I keep going back to and why I'm so excited about the new the new strategy and where we're heading is it's about us. It's about our storytellers. Like if we can just be absolutely hot shit about ensuring that the um the the storytellers coming through you know, from kids all the way up through that we're we're building a, an ecosystem and an environment where they're going to get, they're going to want to tell stories as the first thing and then they're going to be supported to do that because they're going to be the ones that know how to make it for the platforms that we don't even know about yet that will come through. So I think if we keep our eyes on our... Um, our amazing taonga, like our storytellers and their skills and their development and their ability to not have barriers to accessing the funding, then, yeah, I totally think it's winnable. I buy that, honestly. <laughs> not an easy question, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you, if, if, if you focus on the audiences and the people who want to reach them and then, you know, everything else is contestable, you know, it's going to be destabilising, but it feels like the best shot. Um, hey, thanks so much for coming on the fold, Amy. Thanks, Duncan. Can I take five seconds to just say for this insanely geeky podcast, just how grateful I personally am because I feel like we, um, it, it informs it informs the work and it's brilliant and you're doing a great job, even if your questions are really long. Well, they are really long, eh? <laughs> I, I often like skip through the fold and I'm like, hey, man, bro, you're still talking. It's a nightmare. <laughs> You need to like we've got to hit cracking up over there. He knows, but I feel like he needs to be able to like electrocute me or something. Anyway, I'm doing it again. Um, thank you. The fold was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network. It was hosted by Duncan Greve, produced by T.I. Hair Butler, and series production by Jane Yee.
podcast manager at the spin-off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.